Well, the series that we've been in this summer, if you'll remember, is uh, The Gospel-Driven Life, where we are walking through the book of Galatians. And what we're talking about is how the truth of the gospel uh, has implications for every area of our life and how the message of the gospel and the wonders of God's grace given to us in the gospel is to drive every area of our life and shape us in every single way. And that's what we're talking about week after week. And this week, we're going to talk about our acceptance in Christ. Now, acceptance is a thing that uh, I think deep down we all really long for. And I would think typically the place that many of us most find acceptance would be in our family. And that's as God has designed it that the family be a reflection of his acceptance of us and our being a part of his family. But I would also say probably one of the areas in our life where we most long for acceptance is in the family, right? The reality for so many of us is that the place that we most long for acceptance and love is in the family. And there might be no other true example of that than in the relationship with your in-laws, right? What is that that term just, doesn't it bring warm feelings to your heart? In-laws, right? It's always an interesting relationship, right? The in-law relationship. I think it's very commonly uh, a relationship in our life where we are always striving for acceptance and it's also a place that you never quite feel like you get it. And that can be on both ends, right? So it's always a, an interesting kind of relationship here. Some of you are sitting with your in-laws now, and I hope not to embarrass you. Maybe you'll have good conversation afterwards. They can affirm their love and acceptance of you. Um, but let me say right at the outgo, I have wonderful in-laws. I mean, they're fantastic. If you met them, listen, you, you'd think... They hung the moon. They're super. They're fantastic. And I really mean that. I'm not, it's not tug-in-cheek. But even as super and as wonderful as they, is, as they are, as they is. <laughs> man, I'm just giving away where I'm from here, aren't I? <laughs> as wonderful as they are, for me, it's always been a struggle, that relationship. Never quite feeling like I'm accepted. Never quite feeling like I'm in. And so from the very beginning of Ashley and I's relationship, I was always trying to win their favor. Always, I would always get nervous around them and everything. And uh, it didn't add to the fact that uh, all of her family is like tall, dark, and handsome. Okay? <laughs> They're totally intimidating people. I mean, they don't mean to be. It's just reality. And so one of the first times that I was with them, we went to the beach. Okay? And so unfortunately at the beach, you have to take your shirt off, you know? <laughs> And so we're sitting on the beach, and they've all got six-packs, and, you know, they're all dark. And, and I'm sitting there. It's probably 100 degrees, and I've got my T-shirt on. I'm like, I'm good. I'm okay. A little, little chilly out here. <laughs> it's intimidating, and they're very close. Her family's very close. So anytime we'd be together, they're all sitting there with each other, cutting up and laughing and everything. And I'm sitting there feeling so awkward and like, what can I say? How can I... How can I impress them? You know, I, I would be so caught up in how do I look and how can I gain their approval that I would be so aware of myself that I would 
wouldn't even be able to talk. You know, Ashley would oftentimes say after we were with them, what happened to you? You know, it, it, it was like my husband wasn't even there with me. You know, you seem like a different person. I'm like, I know. Every time we get there, I get so self-aware, get so, you know, so afraid to say something wrong that I'm not even myself. I can't even talk at all. And so that, that dynamic's very real in her family of striving for acceptance, striving to be, uh, to be, to have their approval in my life. Well, compare that experience with her brother, Michael. Now, Michael is the prince of the family. Everything revolves around the baby, the, the son, Michael. Now, he is, he is the, he's the star of the show. In fact, whenever you're with her family, they're all talking about Michael. Whether he's there or not, they're all talking about Michael. Michael did this, he did that. Michael hung the moon. Their delight in him is so great. Everything that he does, they're so proud of him even though he's never really done anything. You, know, <laughs> you would think he had been elected to office or something by the way that they treat him. You know, they delight in him. They take such pleasure in him. And I, I think about it. What, what a difference between the experience of being a son-in-law and being a son. You see, for him, because of their acceptance and their delight and their pleasure, you know what you notice about him whenever you're around? He's free. He's not once thinking, what do they think of me? Do they accept me? Have I done enough? No, are you kidding? He's never once thought of that, about that. He's free. He's totally comfortable before them. He, he, know, he, he feels so secure in front of them that he knows that nothing he can do Nothing he can do can change their love and delight. And it sets him at peace and it sets him free. And it forms such a contrast to my seeking approval, my feeling of not being accepted. Now here's, here's the reality. I think this is, this is what's true of me. In my relationship with the Lord, so often I feel far more like a son-in-law than a son. You ever feel like that? I know you do. I know you do. Because I know you. You're just like me. And I know your lives. I know like me, why else would we search for life and approval in, in, in the, uh, the opinions of others? Why else would we search for identity in so many other things? Why else would we be so busy trying to arrive in the things of this life if not, we felt more like a son-in-law than a son before the father. Well, this is what we're going to see in our passage. Paul says to us, because you are in union with Christ, you are a son. And that means you are as accepted as the perfect son. And so he's going to say to us, do you see the pleasure of the father in you? His delight entirely because of the work of another. And whenever you see that, it changes your life. It changes your everyday, the way that you live. That's what we'll see in our passage. Three things we'll notice. One is the law can never give us acceptance. Next, we'll see that in Christ we have a new status. And next, that in Christ we have a new experience, an experience of sonship. That's what we'll see in our passage. So let's jump right in. 
beginning at chapter 3, verse 21. And you've noticed one of the themes that Paul has been dealing with week in and week out is the fact that the Galatians, who were Gentile Christians, had at first received the gospel of grace alone, and it had set them free. It had set them free and filled them with joy. But then after Paul continued on to another church plant, a group of Jewish Christians arrived and began to teach something a little bit different. Not totally different, but a little bit different. And say, listen, it's fantastic that you have faith in Jesus. But in addition to that, you've got to observe the law. You know, you've got to keep the law, of course. And they were being taken over by this teaching, and Paul is opposing that as being a distortion of the gospel altogether. He says there's no gospel at all. And one of the things he's having to deal, deal with over and over and over is, what is the nature of the law? That's one of the things in question here. And that's what he picks up with in our passage. As he says in verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Now that might be a question that you run into. As Paul's talked about over and over and over, the law can never make you justified before God. The things that you do can never make you right before God. And now that is a revolutionary kind of thing to say. Because the basic fundamental reality that all human beings know in their heart is that my acceptance is based upon my performance. And so Paul is saying something radically, radically different. And so what you say in this about the law, it might be tempting to say, so does that, what does that say about the law? Does it mean the law doesn't matter? That it's no good? And that's what Paul begins to pick up here. And he says, absolutely not. The law is not opposed to the promises of God. The law is not a bad thing, not in any way. The law is a beautiful thing. But the problem with the law is that it is powerless, right? It's beautiful because it reveals God, who he is, what he's like. But it is powerless to justify you because here's the problem. We are. The problem is us. Is sin living in us. That's the problem. And so Paul goes on to say the role of the law is to expose that, is to bring it out. You know, he describes the law here as putting you in prison, that it locks you in, that whenever you see the law, you see a standard, you, the holiness of God is revealed to you, it's like it locks you up and throws away the key. It's like it makes you a prisoner. It holds you there before him. It shows you, oh no. I'm in trouble. I can't do this. I can't live up to this. So that, and here's the point, it drives you to his mercy alone. Paul says the purpose of the law is to drive you to Christ. Never through keeping any standard can you be made right before the Lord. Rather, it is through the law that you get exposed. The law is kind of like, have you ever looked in a mirror whenever there's a a fluorescent light above you. You ever notice what that does? All of a sudden you get a lot uglier than you were, right? If you're looking into a mirror and there's a fluorescent light, the fluorescent light brings out the imperfections in your face. You look in there and you're like, man, I, I'm like, I got a lot of moles here. And what's going on? It, it exposes, it reveals, it doesn't create them. It just shows them up. The same is true as whenever uh, I go to the dentist, you know, they'll put that dye in your mouth and you swish it around, you spit it out, 
And then you open up, and what does it do? It exposes all the plaque. It, it exposes all the imperfections in there so that they can go in and clean it, right? Paul says, that's what the law does. The law, whenever you see it, and you see its standard, and you begin to try to keep it, you know what becomes very apparent very quickly? Oh my goodness, everything in me is opposed to this. I am shot through with sin, and it's not just my actions. It's my heart and my desires as well. I hope you've had this experience. Otherwise, the grace of Christ will not be electrifying to you. Unless you have been caught and locked up by the law, the wonders of His grace in Christ will be tasteless to you. It will just be words. It will just be a doctrine. Let me give you an example. Just take the 10th commandment. Just take one. What is the 10th commandment? Do not covet. And now coveting is wanting something that your neighbor has, right? And so if you begin to think about that for a minute, you realize, well, we're kind of in a bad spot because our entire culture is based upon coveting, right? If everybody were to be able to stop coveting at this moment, I think our entire economy would collapse immediately, right? But if you were to really take seriously, okay, I'm not going to covet today. In fact, maybe you should try that today. And at the end of the at the uh, the end of the day tonight, if you're in your bed, begin to review your life and say, "Okay, did I covet today?" You know what you're going to find? I went around coveting everything that there was. That's what Paul says in Romans seven. He said, "I didn't know what coveting was till I saw in the law, do not covet." And covet is especially difficult, right? Because it leads to all the others. It's especially difficult because it's not an action. You know, if I haven't killed somebody, if I haven't murdered somebody, well, then I'm good, you would think, although the law is, does even there go to the motivations. But it would be easy to think, well, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't committed adultery, you know, I've honored the Sabbath, I, I'm doing pretty good. But coveting is of the heart. A little bit harder to control that one, right? And Paul said, whenever I saw do not covet, I found myself coveting absolutely everything. You see, the reality of the law is not only does it expose and reveal your outrageous need of His grace, it also incites sin. The more that you come under law, the more that it actually stirs it up even more. You ever experienced that? And so what Paul is saying here is that the law is beautiful, it reveals God, but it is powerless to justify you. And actually, its role in your life is it exposes your need of His grace. It drives you to Him that you would say, My only hope is you. My only hope is your mercy. My only hope is the work of another on my behalf. And Paul says, that is the point. That's what it's for, to lead you to Christ. Now, you notice what he finished with in verse 25. He says, now that faith has come, that is, faith in Christ, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Did my microphone fall down here? Have y'all heard me? Y'all can say something, you know? Okay. So he says, now that faith has come, you're no longer under the supervision of the law. That's a remarkable reality. For those 
who have fled to Christ, who have abandoned your own works, performance, standards, and have put your hope in him, Paul says you're no longer under the supervision of the law. What does he mean? It is no longer your measure. It's no longer your standard. It no longer tells you where you are. It's no longer based upon your performance. You're not under it. Rather, you're under grace. You're free. What defines you now is not your performance, not how well you're doing. What defines you now, if your hope and trust is in Christ, is in his work on your behalf. And that's what Paul's saying here. So the law can never, can never make us acceptable before God. But then Paul goes on to talk about what is the nature of our acceptance? What is the nature of our standing? Look in verse 26 where he says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now this is a profound verse. An amazing verse. In fact, J.I. Packer says this is the root of all Christian living. Getting this right here. Paul says to us, if you are united to Christ by faith, then you all are sons. Now, it's important that it says sons here. For some of you, your version, it might have translated it children or whatever, or sons and daughters. Paul's not, he's not here trying to exclude anyone. It's that the significance of son makes a difference. Because in this culture, the son had all the rights to the inheritance. They had the standing. They had the acceptance, the approval. All the, all the estate, all of the rights of the family belonged to the son. And that's what he's saying to us. If you are in Christ, if your hope is in him, then you are a son. You are accepted, fully accepted. You're standing before the Father is one of all the rights of the estate. It belongs to you. It's a, it's a message of radical acceptance that is now true of us through our union with Christ. That is our standing. You are all sons. It has nothing to do with what we've done. It has everything to do with what the Son has done on our behalf. And in Him, we now have the full rights of sons. Notice what he says in the very next verse. So, why is it that we have this standing? What makes it so? Verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now, to be baptized into, baptism, what baptism signifies is union with Christ through faith. That's what it's picturing. And so through our union with Christ, Paul says, this is your new identity right here. You have been clothed with Christ. Think about that image for a minute. Paul says, that's what's most true of you. You are clothed with Christ. What do you think he intends to communicate through an image of being clothed? Well, if you think for a minute about our clothing, our clothing is something that is very near to us, right? It goes everywhere that you go. And it's your covering. It's your protection. It's, it covers your nakedness. It protects you. It, um, it's, uh, it's very intimate. You know, nothing is closer to you than your clothes. 
And it's also our identity, right? I mean, so often our identity is found in our clothing. You know, you can often, well, usually, tell between a man and a woman through their clothing, right? And oftentimes your vocation indicates through your, is indicated through your clothing. So often our identity is laid up in our clothing and what we wear and what we put on. You know, I, I see this reality at work in my house almost every single day. Uh, Hutchinson loves to be like Captain America. <laughs> Captain America is his hero. And for Halloween, he was Captain America. And so he's got this full-body costume. It's complete with the mask, and it's got the muscles, you know, the padded muscles in there. And so every day, at some point during the day, Hutchinson puts on Captain America. He dresses up. He's clothed in Captain America. And whenever he's clothed like Captain America, he does not answer to Hutchinson. The only way you can address him is, hey, Captain America, can you come to the table and eat your lunch? Right? That's the only thing that gets a response. And he goes through the house. You know, he's flying through the house. He's, he's uh, taking care of all the bad guys, which is usually his brother. Right? <laughs> Whenever he puts on Captain America, he becomes Captain America. It's his identity. You see what Paul is saying here to us? He says, if you're in union with Christ by faith, you are clothed in him. That is your identity. Whenever the Father looks upon you, He sees the Son, the perfect Son. That's why we're sons, because we have been clothed with the perfect Son. So His righteousness, it covers us before the Father. He is our intimacy. He goes everywhere that we go. We are united to Him in a vital, one flesh union, where our intimacy with Him is so real and so deep. He is our identity now if we've been clothed in him. So much so that did you see what Paul said in verse 28? Because of our identity in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what Paul says is if you have been clothed with Christ, that is more true of you than anything else about you. Your union with Christ supersedes your gender, your race, your social class. It's more true about you now than anything else. And it has nothing to do with you, but entirely the work of another. So what is the basis for this? What is it that makes this so? Well, look down in verse 4. Paul goes right back to the gospel. Did you see the summary of the gospel here in verses 4 and 5? Paul says, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. You see, the reason that we are clothed in Christ is because of the gospel. And at the core of the gospel is His substituting Himself for us. That's what Paul roots it in. He says, God sent his son, born of a woman. That means he was fully human, so he could perfectly take our place. Born under law. He was obligated to the law. But the difference is, he kept it fully on our behalf. He never coveted. He always put the Father before every other thing. He loved his neighbor as himself 
perfectly. He perfectly kept the law on our behalf, it says, so that he might redeem those who are under the law. Now, this word redeem is taken from the slave trade. To redeem someone is to buy them out of slavery, to purchase their freedom. And through Christ taking our place, coming and keeping the law on our behalf, through faith in him, we're redeemed from the slavery of the law. We're redeemed from the judgment and condemnation of the law that says, you don't measure up. You don't live up to his holiness. Because of our union with him, we're free. We're sons. We've fully arrived. What Paul is saying here is if you are united to him, the Father delights in you. You have his full pleasure, his full acceptance, because you are as accepted as his son. That is our new status. So it's not just our status, though, that we experience. It's also the actual experience of the spirit of the son in us. Did you notice what he moves on to in verse 6? He says, because you are sons, that is, because he has made you a son, because of your status as a son, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And here he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of the Son. So closely does he relate the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Son that he literally calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Son. And so what God does for those who are in union with Christ is he sends the Spirit of Jesus into our hearts to give us the experience of being his Son that we might know experientially deep in our hearts that we are fully accepted and delighted in by the Father. Do you notice how he describes the work of the Spirit? It says, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Now this Abba, that is an Aramaic word. A little strange for Paul, who's writing in Greek. Throw in a little Aramaic there. Why would he do that? Well, it's Aramaic for... Father, but it's really a, an extremely intimate term for father. It would be like daddy, papa. But why would he use an Aramaic term? Well, Aramaic was the language of Palestine. Aramaic was the language that Jesus spoke. It was his native tongue. You see what he's saying here? He's saying whenever the spirit of the son comes into us, he puts the words of Jesus on our lips. Through us, he cries out with such intimacy, with such access, with such nearness, that literally we cry out, Daddy, in the same words that Jesus did to his Father. The Spirit comes to make the reality of what Christ has done for us in our status, to make it real in our experience. In other words, he shows us in our heart that we are fully accepted sons. That's the work of the Spirit. In verse 7, Paul kind of sums it up. He says this, So, here's the bottom line. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. 
Now, that's a profound reality. But here's the problem for us. That truth so seldom penetrates our lives. You see the contradiction there? Do you see the contradiction there between what Paul is saying is now true of us, now in spite of anything in us, despite of how lousy of a, of a child of God we seem to be? You see how, how profound the truth is, but do you see the contradiction between what the reality of our everyday lives? You see, theoretically, we believe this. Sure, that's true. That's great. That's fantastic. But the reason that it doesn't electrify us in our lives is that functionally we are looking to so many other things for approval and for identity. If you are a son, if you have full and complete acceptance before the Father, if He delights in you and you have all of His approval, then why are we so often so desperately searching for the approval of others? Why is that so? Why is the criticism of others, why does it so destroy us? You know, why are we so controlled by what others think if we have the approval of the Father? Why is it not making its way into our life? If we are clothed with Christ, if our identity is in Him entirely, then why are we searching for identity in the things that we have and in the things that we do in our life? Why are we driving so hard to accomplish, to arrive, to set our identity in what we do, being perfect at what we do, performing, being better than them? Why are we always comparing ourselves to one another? If our identity is in Him, then you're free from that. If we are children of the Father who's sitting on His throne and owns everything, then why so often are we eaten up by fear? and anxiety, and stress. It just doesn't compute. It's a contradiction there. You know, why is it that a financial difficulty, a health, you get some health news into your life, and immediately we're rocked? I don't know what happens in you, but you know what happens in me? I knew you weren't going to take care of me. Just like that. It's like I'm a cosmic orphan in an instant. Where are you? You're not looking out for me. It's all up to me. Do you experience that? That's what worry is. That's exactly what worry is. Why are we so eaten up with stress in our life? If we are a child of the one who owns everything, we should be free. And if we're an heir of the kingdom, if all things belong to ours, if all of our Father's possessions belong to us, and one day we will fully enter into the inheritance of it, why are we so controlled by stuff? Why does money have such a hold on us? Why are we chasing after it so desperately? Why is it so hard to let go of it? You see, there is a gap. There's a gap between what we understand in our head and what we functionally live out of and believe in our hearts. Theoretically, we believe, yeah, I'm a son. I'm fully accepted in him alone. But functionally, we're looking to so many other things for our acceptance, for our standing, for our status. You know what I think is probably the most fundamental application and implication for us? 
It is how the gospel shapes us in our life together as a community. That's where Paul went in verse 28, chapter 3. Did you notice that? Look again at what he says. He says, Here there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, Paul says there is profound social and corporate implications of the gospel. You see, as he goes through there, he says, What's most true of you now? is not all of the things that tend to divide us, your class, your race, your gender, or any other thing that you can imagine. What's most true of us is this. We are clothed with Christ. And so what that means is that we share more together in common than we could ever share with anyone else outside of our community. You have more in common with a believer in Christ than you would ever have with an unbeliever, no matter how similar they are to you. You see, what it does is it makes us one. It makes us a community that is one together because we share more in common than anything else. But there's another thing that it does in our life together. It makes us a radically accepting kind of community. You know, if we are convinced that we have been accepted at the most ridiculous cost to God, that our acceptance is so complete and so full, you know what it will do to you? It will make you an accepting people of others. You're not going to hold people to things quite as harshly. You're just going to accept people just like they are. If you are convinced that I have received radical acceptance, then it frees you to accept others. And that's the kind of community that we ought to be. If our identity is entirely in Christ, why would we hide from one another? Why would we try to act like we have it all together in front of one another? Why would we be caught in endless small talk with one another? Do you see the implications of the gospel for our life together? They're vast. So there's something about being a son. Something that it's just so freeing. You know, that, that acceptance, that rest of of just being delighted in. There's something about a son that's just so appealing. And I see it in my, my boys all the time. They know how accepted they are with me. You know what it does? They're not worried about living up to a standard. I guarantee you they're not worried about living up to a standard. They're not nervous about my acceptance. They're not wondering, is, is your love going to be there for me? Do I have your approval? Because I shower it on them constantly. You know what it does? It sets them free. They're, at the very least, they're themselves. I can promise you that before me. That is the acceptance of a son. And they're always saying, Daddy, Daddy, a billion times over. Right? Paul is saying to us in this passage, that is your reality in the gospel. Believe it. Rest in it. You are fully accepted in the son. Revel in it. Enjoy it. Let it set you free so that you would live no longer for you trying to get your approval and acceptance, but for others and for His glory. Let's pray together.